0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Do you have an insecurity that you hide from the world? Something really personal and intimate? In his new short story collection, the actor and now also author Jesse Eisenberg imagines a school bully who's researched his victims... Especially so that he can tap in to those emotional weak spots. I wonder what a bully who did his research
2: would pick on about you. Um, it would be more than four pages. Uh, <laughs> um, it, uh, I oh yeah, I mean uh, <laughs> the um, oh goodness gracious, I was not prepared for this, and I don't mean. In this interview, I was not existentially prepared for this question. (laughs) He's going to dig deep, though, and he's going to tell us it's bullseye.
1: Coming up, I'll talk to Jesse Eisenberg about writing, anxiety, and getting that first break.
2: It's the difference really, in, in a way, like when I think about writing something, it's the difference between the blank page and page one, which is a much bigger difference than page one and page 100. Because once you have page one, it, it's everything. It's a context, it's a tone, it's everything. And once you're in a movie that people see and gives you some notice, it creates a kind of um, platform to be able to have a career. Then later I'll
1: talk to Brian Regan, one of the all-time greats of stand-up comedy, about his new special... He might be the most famous stand-up in the United States who's famous for his stand-up. He's never had a TV show. It might be because the meetings don't always go that great.
0: Sometimes, you know, when you go into these network meetings and stuff like that, they're, you know, they're not really familiar with me (laughs) or my comedy. They just feel like, all right, you've gotten to this point, and now we'll take over from here, chuckles. (laughs) And I've always been resistant to that. You know, it's like, well, I want to be at the table deciding what we're going to do.
1: Brian Regan Live will be the first live-to-air stand-up comedy special on Comedy Central. So I guess Brian's going to be well and truly at the table for that one. Plus, the musician Sarah Watkins will introduce us to the song that makes her feel ferocious. And I'll tell you about the funky disco fusion of few That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. Jesse Eisenberg started acting as a kid. Since then, he has starred in a whole pile of movies, including The Social Network, Zombieland, To Roam With Love, and the upcoming Batman vs. Superman. What most people probably don't know about him yet is that he's also a playwright and a short story writer. His new book of comic short fiction is called Bream Gives Me Hiccups, title refers to a series of restaurant reviews written from the perspective of a privileged nine-year-old with divorced parents. The book includes riffs on Alexander Graham Bell bungling his first phone calls, high school angst. Frankly, there is a lot of anxiety and neurosis on display. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg, it is so great to have you on Bullseye. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Jesse, which is the first time I'm able to thank myself without uh, being accused of arrogance.
1: (laughs) So uh I I want to ask you first of all uh you became a professional actor at a young age. Um how old were you when you started uh, going out on auditions for things?
2: Uh I did like children's theater in my town in, in New Jersey when I was about 8 years old, but really like um auditioning for things in New York City, I think I was like 14. Well now tell me tell me like why and how. Uh well um initially I wanted to Perform in the local children's theater because my sister was there and I just wanted to uh, do what she was doing because she's three years older. Um, and anything she did, I did. Um, uh, then I really started to hate school and theater became kind of like not only a kind of like emotional outlet and, a, and another interest, but uh, like a literal one, too. I was able to like leave school to go audition for things when I was 14. Um, uh, if I got into a play, which I did when I was that age, I got to leave early on Wednesdays because there was like a Wednesday matinee. I was understudying in plays, too, so I didn't actually have to do anything. I just had to leave school and go sit backstage with other understudies. So it was kind of the perfect situation. I didn't have to do the nerve wracking acting bit on stage and I, um, I didn't have to be in school.
1: What did you hate about school?
2: I don't know. I wasn't, like, actually really, like, bullied. I I never had, like, a real story where I can go home and say, I hate school because of this particular thing. I just really felt out of place and nervous and homesick. Um, I think probably a lot of kids feel that way, uh, and a lot of kids probably don't have, like, a specific thing to say that went terribly wrong. You know, I was never like beat up or bullied. I wasn't really even picked on. I was probably, if anything, just overlooked. That's probably most kids' experiences who hate school, you know, not being you know bullied or tortured or just stuffed in a locker, but kind of just being overlooked and not feeling, uh, you know, in your element. Um, and uh, uh, I, I was really – it was like kind of profoundly sad. I, I really was very sad, but uh, but with nothing to kind of specific to complain about.
1: Did you feel as socially alienated in the context of the theater as you did uh, at school?
2: No, I, I didn't. I think partly because in school it felt like this absurd thing, like we're all united just based on age and location. And I think as a kid, I think I was just like very consciously aware that that was um, an unreliable uh, uh, <laughs> joining um, criteria. Like, And then in the theater, it was the exact opposite. It felt like we were all there for this kind of... Absurd thing like we're going to perform on stage or in the case of the understudies, we're going to sit back and hope somebody gets sick on stage. And then um, there was this uh, kind of cross, uh, cross-cultural, cross cross-generational uh, uh, um, uh, grouping, So it uh, we were grouped based on a shared interest rather than a location and age. And I think just by virtue of that and by virtue of me knowing my place, like I'm an understudy, which means I can talk to this person and this person and this person because they're also understudies and I can't talk to this person because he's actually in the show. I think that kind of specific delineation of hierarchy made me comfortable.
1: I was hoping you could read something from your new book. And my guest is Jesse Eisenberg. And his new book is called Breen Gives Me Hiccups and Other Stories. Um, and it's sort of It's sort of school related. It's a piece uh, wherein uh, a bully does his bullying with uh,
2: precision insults. Yes. Okay. Exactly. This is called A Bully Does His Research. Well, 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 if it isn't little Tommy, give me your lunch money, dweeb. Hand it over. What? Are you scared? Are you worried about your family's financial situation now that your parents are separated? Well, boo-hoo-hoo, you probably think it's your fault, don't you? And even though your mommy told you that it had nothing to do with you, that you didn't make Daddy fall in love with his hygienist and run away to that ashram in Oregon, it still feels unsettling. You lie awake telling yourself, "'If I had just loved them more, if I had just gotten better grades or was nicer to Grandma when she was in the hospital after her stroke in November, they would still be together.' And now you have to give me the money your mother gives you every morning because she can't pack a bag lunch since her insomnia and reliance on Ambien makes her too groggy. Well, cry me a river. Well, 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 if it isn't Mr. Selowitz, the science teacher, catching me in the act of stealing little Tommy's lunch money. Well, Smelowitz, smell this. I'm not Claude Monet. Yeah, that's right. I know you're threatened by me, but unconsciously associating me with Monet's not going to help. Yeah, I know you wanted to go to RISD since you were my age, but you couldn't get in, and now you're stuck teaching 6th grade science? Well, boo-hoo-hoo. You probably thought you were the future of impressionistic painting, doing your high school art project on a postmodern take on Monet's water lilies, with real lilies mounted in a 3D diorama inside a tank of water. Well, guess what? It wasn't good enough for RISD, and it's certainly not good enough for your stepfather, Aaron Segura, the beloved art critic who never liked your work to begin with. Sorry, Teach.' "'Well, well, well. If it isn't Principal O'Malley, here to suspend me for stealing little Tommy's lunch money and talking back to Mr. Selowitz. I bet it feels good punishing me, right? Lording your limited power over an adolescent bully?' Makes you feel big and strong, doesn't it? Especially since I have such a nice head of hair and you started experiencing rapid male pattern baldness when you were only 16 years old. Well, boo-hoo-hoo, you tried everything, didn't you? First, the natural remedies because you were too embarrassed to tell your doctor that you were going bald and couldn't afford a prescription for anything that would actually work. So you tried eating sardines every day for a year in the faint hope that it would help. And then, by the time you could afford Propecia, it was too late because your hairline had already receded and Propecia has little success of actually regrowing hair shafts from dead follicles, especially in the temple lobe region where you are most explicitly affected. Suck it. Well, 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 if it isn't my father here to pick me up from school after I was suspended for stealing little Tommy's lunch money, talking back to Mr. Selowitz, and showing Principal O'Malley that his need for power is rooted in unresolved trauma related to his early male pattern baldness. Thanks for the ride home, pops. Is it weird to pick me up in the middle of the day, or does it highlight the fact that Mom's the one with the real job? Does it reconfirm, in some conscious or even unconscious way, that you've lost all sense of pride and masculinity? Did it initially seem interesting to have mom keep her job at the law firm while you stay home and raise the kids? Did you brag to all your friends that you were proud to be eschewing gender norms? Well, boo-hoo-hoo, I bet you feel a burning sense to go out into the world and get even the most menial job just to feel like a person again once you realize the novel you thought you'd write with your new free time wasn't ever going to materialize and that you'd be stuck walking around the house in dirty sweatpants, looking at the clock and waiting for the woman you used to know to come back home with the bacon. Psych. (laughs) Well, well, well. If it isn't the town bully, grounded in his bedroom, looking in the mirror and questioning his behavior after stealing little Tommy's lunch money, talking back to Mr. Selowitz, revealing Principal O'Malley's inner demons, and emasculating his father. So, has it really come to this? A cliched moment of self-reflection from the hardened aggressor? Well, boo-hoo-hoo. You probably think that endlessly harassing people with your well-detailed and overly analytical personal criticisms will make you feel better. You probably think you can keep everyone at a safe emotional distance if you can put everyone down. You probably think that if no one can get close to you and you remain hardened against the world, you'll never get hurt. That if no one likes you, you could remain in a safe little bubble. Bite me.
1: Jesse Eisenberg, (laughs) reading from Bream, Gives Me Hiccups and Other Stories, this new book. Um... Jesse, I hope you'll forgive me for asking such a thuddingly obvious question, but. I'll probably um, give you
2: a thuddingly obvious answer. Uh, I wonder what a bully who did his research would pick on about you. Um, it would be more than four pages. Uh, <laughs> um, it. Uh, I. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> the. Um, Oh goodness gracious! I was not prepared for this, and I don't mean in this interview. I was not existentially prepared for this question. Um, <laughs> uh, um, what would he be? What you're asking me to like, kind of list my best flaws, my 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 biggest flaws, best flaws already. I'm or false. It, or at yeah.
1: least the flaws that that you are most worried about. I mean, I don't think that the I, I don't think that bullying is necessarily about what are the actual worst things about you. Um,
2: but it's right. a, more it's... about the things that you are
1: most sensitive about or worried about.
2: Well, I'll tell you. I, I'm i sitting here in a studio at NPR, and the book that's sitting th- – there are two books sitting on the counter here. One is is my book, um, which took me years to write. over oh, the course – you know, I've wrote it over the course of years. And the book that's sitting next to me is a book called The Ottoman Endgame. I'm just going to take it here and look through for a second. So it is um, – 535 pages. Uh, it details war, revolution, and the making of the modern Middle East from 1908 to 1923. Now, I am new to the literary world, and, you know, I think, wow, I spent a lot of time on this book. It's funny. I've done readings of it. It's good. I like it. It's got nice reviews. And yet, I kind of step into the NPR studio, and sitting here is a 535-page book about the, uh, called The Ottoman Endgame. And I guess I feel... Uh... uh a bit like an interloper in this world, you know. I kind of feel like uh, I've been successful in other uh, uh, media, and so I can kind of parlay that in some way, even if my book is as good as the other books that come out, into some kind of like attention in this uh, um, into in this realm. And I feel it a little strange sometimes, and especially when I'm sitting next to a 535-page book about the Ottoman endgame, which probably will have a more difficult time getting pressed than my book, uh, just by virtue of me being in movies and that being about the Ottoman Empire in 1908. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's something I feel quite self-conscious about, especially doing stuff related to my book. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't think the book is good. I think the book is really good. I love reading it. It's my favorite thing. I wrote a thing that I would like to read. Um, uh, But uh, that's what I feel probably most self-conscious about right now.
1: Do you enjoy performing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I love it. I, I love it. I mean, I'm about to start a movie uh, that I didn't write, a Woody Allen movie. Um, But I love that just as much as performing the things I did write. I, I don't see kind of a real distinction. What do you enjoy about it? I, I, I always, you know, I ride the subway and I have this distinct sense that most of the people on the train would love to start weeping, not because their lives are miserable, just because I think we all kind of carry the burden of, you know, we just carry this existential burden, which sounds pretentious, but I think it's true. I think it's like, you know, we all carry these things that we kind of bottle up and, you know, just we can get on with our day. So we tell each other kind of – we tell each other white lies so we don't offend each other and we, we smile and we say, you know, how you doing, good, instead of saying how you doing and waiting for the person to actually tell us, which is fine because that's the way we kind of interact so that the days can go on and that we can do things and, you know, not just – uh you know, sit sit around crying. But I do feel like uh, performing allows me to get all that stuff out in a safe context. Um, it's, I guess, been written about in, in a way and probably is referred to as something like the therapy therapeutic power of, of theater. Um, and it's not just for the performers, but I, I just finished a play that I wrote uh, and we did it for several months. And, you know, you walk out after and people are experiencing real emotions, you know, a, a, during the play and you walk out after and you see that and they express that to you. I think there's something really healthy about that. I wish theater was more accessible so that more people can have that. We had student groups come and, you know, we try to do what we can. But uh, I think there's a really kind of therapeutic power in experiencing emotions. In a room with people, uh, which is why I think people still read, and I think it's why people still go to movies in the way they do, uh, it seems like irrational to go watch something fictional and to cry, but I, uh, during it as though it's real. But I think we do it because it really uh, evokes something that we want to have evoked.
1: When you're experiencing emotion as a performer, how is it similar or different to uh, the experiences that you have as a consumer? Of media as a reader or as a watcher of films or television or whatever?
2: I was once with a friend. Um, I was 18 years old. He was a, a piano player. He had just started at the Manhattan School of Music, and he was a great pianist, and he, he I asked him, could you play me something that, that you're working on? And he played me this incredible uh, a piece, and he was kind of just sitting there. Um, while playing it with no emotion in his face. And to me, it was this incredible uh, experience just listening to this really dramatic, you know, piano piece. And I said to him after, um, uh, you know, that was very moving for me. Did you feel anything? And he was like, well, yeah, I was playing it. I said, I know, but but I was hearing it. he said, whatever you're hearing uh, and experiencing, I, as the player, am feeling it 10 times more. I said, oh, my goodness, really? He said, yes. I said, oh, my God, I, I think actually that's how I feel as an actor. Like, I, I feel... Uh, uh, a lot of these things. Uh, You know, it's fictional, but you're bringing your own emotions to it. There's no way around that. And, uh, or if there is a way around it, I haven't learned it. And I think, uh, as an audience member, you're feeling it too, but it's been my experience that the actors and the really good ones that really kind of invest their own emotions into their performances uh, are feeling it more.
1: I want to play a clip from a movie that you were in. uh, that came out last year called The Double, um, which I really liked. And Oh, thanks. It's a bit of a difficult film to explain, but um, it's a very stylized um, film sort of set in a vaguely futuristic world in the, in the way that a, a Lynch movie or a, a Brazil or something like that is set in a vaguely futuristic world. And you play a character named Simon who, who sort of meets a doppelganger at his work, right. it's not immediately entirely clear whether this doppelganger is a you know whether it's something that's literally happening in the world or something that's happening with his own mind or whatever. Um, but anyway, I, I want to play. I want to play this scene. So so Simon is sitting down with James, who's his new coworker, and <laughs> looks exactly like him. Both of them are played by you, um, but right. they're completely different in their manner. Um, right. Simon is sort of uh, jumpy and nervous and passive and. Uh, James is really confident and uh, swaggery and and we hear (laughs) Simon first in this scene
2: what do you want to okay no sorry then I'll just have a coke and a bagel we're out of bagels right then um, right then I'll just come on right sorry I just uh, I'll just I can't just have the coke then I guess a coke and you a coffee a coffee and scrambled eggs. Do not serve breakfast in the evening? Why not? Because it says so on the menu. Well, do you still have eggs here? Yeah. And do you have a frying pan? Yeah. Then do me a favor and make me some scrambled eggs. Fine. Anything else? Bacon. Bacon. And toast. And toast. And a beer. And a beer. Anything else? No, that's it. Are you sure? Just give me the damn food.
1: In conversation, uh, you are not nearly as... Uh, halting and timid as Simon, but there's uh, more Simon than uh, than there is James in your <laughs> natural mode of communication. <laughs> That's true. What's it like to inhabit a character who is as
2: sort of clear and forceful in the world? It's It's great. It's like, you know, it's like the kind of like, you know, everybody has that fantasy that they would walk into their boss's office and tell them what they really think. You know, it's you get to do that, but in a kind of safe context, not only in a safe context, but as part of your job. Uh, it's just it's the greatest thing. I, You know, I, uh, I think that's probably why people do that kind of boss exercise in group therapy situations, because it's such a cathartic experience. Uh, and if you could do it in a kind of safe context, uh, you can really release and exorcise, uh, uh, you know, that kind of that aggression that we probably all have and that we all bury because it's inappropriate to to do it in, you know, normal interaction.
1: I'll continue my conversation with Jesse Eisenberg after a break. We'll talk about his upcoming role as Lex Luthor in the new Batman vs. Superman movie and how he's dealt with his own social anxieties. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Baby
2: Hi, I'm Lisa Hannawalt, And I'm Emily Heller. And if you're not listening to our podcast, Baby Geniuses, you're missing out on stuff like... Camille Nanjiani, Solving the Zodiac Murders. Uh, who's
3: like... Would you ever go to a friend and you're like, hey, could you lick all these, lick all <laughs> these envelopes for me? You'd be like, you're a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely, I'm leaving right now. Guy Branum talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: <laughs> um, and it was, it was just a great moment of like, oh, no, I'm here, boys. Like, I'm on this side of the bench...
2: Megan Amram talking about intimidating baristas. Just feel like they're always in character.
3: Like, they're always in character as, like, cool hipster girl. Uh-huh. And I
0: just want to break through that barrier.
3: Plus, every week we explore a new Wikipedia page and talk to a crazy expert in the field of nonsense. Well, yeah. any any
2: hack can make you not have a boner. I mean, that's it's about how you do it. Right. You know? And we're the only podcast with regular updates about Martha Stewart's pony or your money back. We're not going to give them their money back, are we?
0: Mm. No, let's keep it.
2: yeah, listen to our show every other Monday on maximum fun.
1: yay, yay It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Jesse Eisenberg. He's an academy award nominated actor and just published his first book of short fiction, which is called "Bream Gives Me Hiccups." Your first big film was when you were what like nineteen or something, right? Yeah. What was that experience like for you to be? I mean, it's one thing to be, uh, you know, to be acting on stage and so on and so forth, or to have a little part in something, or be in a commercial or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another thing to be the the star of a reasonably critically acclaimed and successful film. You know, a small one, but a but a big small one.
2: Yeah, I I I mean, it's 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 really that's you know when when when. When actors talk about luck, that, that's what they're referring to. Is that there is this, you know, y- you could, you could do a play and be the greatest actor in the world, and if it's not a good play or if not that many people see it, it ends up being kind. It ends up becoming kind of like it feels, oftentimes meaningless in terms of the trajectory of a career. Conversely, you could be. Fine in something, but it's popular. It's well received. The camera, for some reason, framed you in a way that made you look dramatic or something, and and be very well received. Um, that doesn't necessarily often lead to a, a, a lo- career longevity. But um, for me, yeah, I was nineteen years old, and I was in this movie, Roger Dodger, and it was a small New York movie, but it was the kind of movie that people who make movies see. So it's good for you know, it's good for an actor to. It's great exposure. Uh, and to me, I just felt so lucky. It it was the difference between having an acting career that. I could, you know, realistically pursue. Um, it's it's it's, you know, it's the difference really in in a way like when I think about writing something, it's the different if it's it's the difference between the blank page and page one, which is a much bigger difference than page one and page one hundred, because once you have page one, it it's everything. It's a context. It's a tone. It's everything. And once you're in a movie that people see and gives you some notice, it creates a kind of um, platform to be able to have. A career. And then what you do after that and how you treat it and how hard you work and, you know, hopefully other kind of lucky breaks along the way is what keeps it sustainable.
1: Let's take a listen to a clip from Roger Dodger, uh, which starred my uh, my guest Jesse Eisenberg when he was still a teenager. Um, He plays a guy named Nick who goes to stay with his uncle uh, Roger in New York City. And um, his hope is that his uncle will like teach him to be a smooth grown up who you know can meet women and, and that kind of thing. The uncle is played by Campbell Scott and in this scene they're in a bar and they're hanging out waiting for two women to join them at the table.
2: So uh how often do you like you know like like get somebody to, to go home with you every night. Just because you're not having sex, Nick, doesn't mean the rest of us are sitting around playing cribbage. What's, what's the cribbage? What? What? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here they come. This is so stupid. They're like twice my age. Champions refuse to lose. Be like Mike. Here
1: we are,
3: as uh, promised, for one drink. I'm Andrea, and this is Sophie. I'm
2: Roger. This is my nephew, Nick.
3: Hey, he really is like 16. I
2: told you. Sit down. Sit down. How'd you get in here, Nick? Um. Oh uh, well, it's, it's funny. You should um me that because uh we were before we dis- discussing it and um and never you mind.
1: <laughs> it seems like you have had experiences w- in films with really different tones. I mean, there's so much difference between the tone of. I'm just thinking of movies of yours that I've seen that I really liked, you know? Like the the difference between The Double and The Social Network and a- Adventureland, you
0: mm-hmm. know,
1: that's three three wildly different versions of representing reality, you know, none of which are about, you know, none of which are necessarily about, a, you know, a, whatever our idea of naturalism is.
2: Yeah, that's right. But they're all kind of... Um they're all honest to the kind of context with which they've established themselves you know uh and that's that's the only really important thing is that the kind of the the contract that is set up between the uh between the product and the audience is is um is honored So that, you know, if you set up a movie like The Double uh, uh, and it's very unusual world or even a movie that I was in, like Zombieland, which is like this heightened kind of comedy uh, uh, in this post-apocalyptic world, if you set up the kind of if you set up the, the rules of that world, uh, then you have to honor them. And that makes all of those movies uh, really good because they kind of stick to their they stick to their word. Those those movies don't have to necessarily represent the human experience in the way that the viewers experience the human experience, but uh, but they represent a kind of consistent portrait of something. And in doing so, well, it's like what George Bernard Shaw said, you know, if you write or F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and somebody with three names, uh, you know, if you write about yourself, you write about the whole world. And that's what those things do. They're kind of true to themselves and they're therefore maybe relevant to the entirety of the human experience.
1: Do you worry about the amount of yourself that you and sort of control over your own identity, you give up to a huge audience when you do something for a huge audience? I mean, I think about like you're supposed to be in a, a Superman movie, right? And mm-hmm. um I don't know where that is along the thing along the timeline, but um mm-hmm. it's a it's a thing that you're gonna be Lex Luther in a Superman movie, right? Right. And like that is something the scale of which is so gargantuan that right. I can barely even wrap my head around it. And it's something that, you know, I know people who've, you know, I have a friend, Glenn Weldon, who wrote an entire book about Superman, dedicated years of his life to this thing. And he is not unusual in his dedication to this world, you know. <laughs> That's true. And it's a, it, it's a, It intimidates, the thought of it intimidates me.
2: Oh, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe there's something intimidating if I were to really try to figure out what that was. But there's nothing I can do to – you know, the best thing I could do is to try to act well, right? Um, And then, you know, hopefully the other pieces are in place, which they are. The writer, Chris Terrio, is – Incredible I want, one of the best scripts i've read is really great. He wrote this incredible script with really sophisticated philosophical ideas at the heart of uh, uh, you know an exciting movie uh, and Zack Snyder is a you know kind of a visual uh, uh, master master, uh, master and so um, it, so i 'm proud to be a part of that in terms of the uh, you know personal exposure. I guess it 's uncomfortable in a lot of ways, but i don 't know what the alternative would be. I mean the alternative frankly would be to not do it. And uh, when I weigh the things out, uh, it doesn't even register on the, on the scale, um, to the, you know, the idea of not doing it. Uh, it's an amazing role uh, in and of itself. It was. The, if it was the last role I did, I would still be satisfied with it. But by virtue of it being so popular and by virtue of it being a great role, it'll give me other opportunities to continue doing what I like doing. So, I mean, there's no, uh, there's, there's no amount of uh, counterweight that, that would <laughs> uh, steer me clear of it.
1: I, um, there's a series of stories in your book uh, that give it its title, The the Bream Gives Me Hiccups, uh, that are essentially stories from the perspective of this kid about his family falling apart that are in the form of restaurant reviews or at least meal reviews. Right. And it's so, uh, they're so sweet and, and heartbreaking in addition to being very funny. And I don't know, I wondered if, all of these kids who were standing on shaky ground that are in this book came from your experience and and more than that, I think I wondered like whether you feel like as a as an adult the the ground
2: underneath you is a, is more stable um it's i my parents are 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 married and 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 good people um so this is not my specific experience, but it's a world I live in and a world I see. Uh it's a world a lot of people live in and unfortunately too many people uh live in, uh coming from broken families. Um and it's something that I think I could realistically convey uh with humor and sadness and you know maybe some kind of
1: I mean Jesse, in some way like yeah. it's it's not to in my to my mind about the specific circumstances, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. about parents being divorced, but more about that feeling when you are a kid that you are not sure that you are able to figure out how things work in the world mm. um, and the, the the sort of fear that comes with that. I mean, that that is shot through a lot of the pieces in the book.
2: You know, you feel like this, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who feel like they're kind of on the outside of a lot of social situations feel, you know, this kind of, uh, this, you know, this feeling of real inferiority, a real feeling of, I am absolutely the worst person in this room. And then with that comes a little bit of, you know, just instinctively the flip side of that, which is I feel like no one understands what's actually going on here, and I do. And I think that's probably the kind of the strange dichotomy that a lot of people who feel kind of on the outskirts of normal socialization feel. And so that's what I write about. That's what I feel. And I think probably that's – I imagine that's what a lot of people feel even if they appear confident because I probably appear – you know confident probably a lot of people a lot of people appear happy and confident and are having that you know that kind of deep you know that profound feeling of uh of being out of place um and um and even if you don't typically feel that you probably've had experiences that make you feel that way um i think that's the human you know experience as i imagine and um uh so that's what i write about and i i think um that's what i can absolutely relate to especially as uh you know the first stories are about a 9 year old other stories about people my age but um uh, as a kid that's certainly how i felt
1: do you feel uh do you feel less like that now as an adult
2: or no, I think do I have, you feel like it's the same i have all those same feelings but you have kind of more history and more evidence to uh indicate otherwise so um it's a little easier to kind of uh you know, look at the past and say, oh, right, uh, uh, I don't need to feel that way because I felt that way November 17th, 2006, and <laughs> the thing I was worried about didn't come true. <laughs> what are you, uh, Mary Lou Henner? Yes, exactly. I was wearing my red shirt and eating, yeah. Um, you know, uh, so- Judd Hirsch was saying that he had just gone to see. Yes, sing. exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, and I – yeah, so that's helpful. That's certainly helpful. The feelings don't go away because the feelings are like a core set of – core, a core brain wiring. Uh, that doesn't go away. The only thing that goes away is the kind of length at which you feel those feelings because in the past you wouldn't be able to look back and say, oh, right, it, 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 the, the, the world didn't collapse.
1: Well, Jesse Eisenberg, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you.
2: Yeah, likewise, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. Jesse
1: Eisenberg's new book is called Breen Gives Me Hiccups and Other Stories. He's also in a a broad variety of movies that you can watch at a movie theater or at home on your TV. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Sarah Watkins is a fiddle player and singer who works as a solo artist and with the Watkins Family Hour. The Watkins Family Hour is a bit of a musician's collective, anchored by Sarah and her brother Sean. Sarah and Sean played for many years with the group Nickel Creek. This is Early Morning Rain from the Watkins Family Hour's debut record. The Watkins Family Hour is also a variety show every month in L.A., trying out new material, bringing in new musicians, So when we asked Sarah to talk about a song that changed her life, it made sense that it was something that captured that feeling of a live show.
3: My name is Sarah Watkins, and I chose What Makes You Think You're the One, a Fleetwood Mac song off of
1: Tusk. It came to her just when she needed it most. She was in her early 20s, and she heard a cover of a song performed live by an L.A.-based musician named John Bryan.
3: John Bryan was was doing one of his solo nights and he sang the song with a fury and it was just so powerful and I hadn't heard Tusk at all and I went and got this record.
1: She ended up listening to Fleetwood Mac's version over and over.
3: That song just became really important to me. This song, like, and I still go to it at these times where I am just feel like I want to erupt the way that every hit of the snare is on this, you know. It sounds almost like a drum is falling downstairs, it's just It just sounds reactive, and it's not careful, and it's not cautious It's just somebody responding to the attitude of this song, and and to the lyric, and the way Lindsay's singing it Those drums were recorded with an old cassette player just stuck underneath the snare drum because the compression and the way that it comes through that little cheap microphone made it sound just kind of tough and mighty and it's just so fun. I think at the time I was in my early 20s and I was starting to be dissatisfied with the way that I was interfacing with the world. I felt like my patterns of behavior weren't necessarily linked up to how I felt about myself inside and I think I wanted to be more aggressive and I wanted to feel like I represented myself with strength and I wasn't sure how to do that. I remember a specific time when I went to this song for a reason, many, many times, days and days, and I remember working in the studio in the early 2000s, and I would pull up to the studio and just sit there and play this song and crank it till I hurt my ears, and I just remember singing along with it and air drumming along with it and just feeling like this song was coming out of me. And it felt like I had a teammate, like an emotional teammate at that time, to be able to have this song that was performed so ferociously. And I wanted to be ferocious. I wanted to have that. I felt like this song was mine. I would take it with me. And I, 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 would, I had this uh, almost strength. For me, whenever I feel a change coming, when I have something new to say, when I have, it's its because I've been stagnant and I get really sick of it and you have to churn it up and that turbulence is required for movement. And that turbulence, uh, I think, is the thing that I felt happening when I was listening to this song. today, I, I notice how sparse it is. And when I listened to it back then, it just seemed fierce and relentless. And it is. It still is. But I, uh, it's funny how when you, when you need something to be something, it can really stand up to it.
1: Sarah Watkins on the song that changed her life, What Makes You Think You're the One, by Fleetwood Mac. Her group, The Watkins Family Hour, has a new self-titled record out. You can find them at WatkinsFamilyHour.com. After a break, I'll talk to Brian Regan about his new stand-up special, Brian Regan Live. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Ty is a pedantic person. I think when he pronounces these words, it's, it's in a very show-offy way. Gyro. Sacre bleu, sacre blue. Ayers Rock.
0: Uluru. <laughs> and...
1: <laughs> what you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with real cases. They call in via Skype to judge John Hodgman's court. The real people's court. Now I call you to Judge John Hodgman's Internet
2: Court. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ask a 100 comedians who the best in the business are. And there are folks that you know will end up with, you know, dozens of votes. Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld, Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman... I'll bet dollars to donuts that number one on that list, the one comic who unites everyone, is Brian Regan. 100 comedians out of 100 love Brian Regan. He works clean, he does observational stuff, and he can destroy any audience. Any audience. Showtime at the Apollo, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, research facility in Antarctica. It doesn't matter. He will get his laughs. (laughs) Regan's probably the most famous comic in the United States who's actually famous for doing stand-up comedy. He has all of three acting credits on his IMDb page, one of which is just him doing material on Dr. Katz, so it sort of doesn't count. (laughs) Regan travels the country filling theaters on the strength of his stand-up and his stand-up alone. Here he is on his last of more than 20
0: appearances
1: on The Late Show with David Letterman.
0: I always love whenever there's a best-of-seven series because then I get to hear my favorite sports reporter question. Would you consider this a must-win game? (laughs) You know, they always feel like they have to say yes. Yeah, we want to win it. It's it's very important, you know. Got our uniforms on. Anyway, might as well try. (laughs) But it's not always the right answer, man. It's a math question. I wish I would answer that question honestly. It's a best of seven. You're down one game to nothing. Would you consider this a must-win game? No. No, we can lose tonight. We can lose tomorrow night, too. We don't want to, but that wasn't your question. You asked if it was a must-win game, and if you'd ever taken a rudimentary math class. You'd already know the magic number's three. When you're down three, then you must win them or you're out.
1: His new stand-up special will air live on Comedy Central on September 26th. Brian Regan, it's great to finally have you on Bullseye. Thank you so much for coming in.
0: Well, thank you, Jesse. I appreciate that. So, uh,
1: Brian, this is a question I want to ask you about your career, and I don't want it to seem impertinent, but... How much of the fact that your career is so focused on stand-up comedy is about uh, you just wanting to do stand-up comedy, and how much is it about other non-stand-up comedy parts of the entertainment industry uh, wanting you to focus on stand-up comedy? (laughs) Um,
0: Well, a a little of both. Um, I I love stand-up comedy. I like it as an end result. That doesn't mean I wouldn't want to occasionally venture off and do some other stuff. But, um, you know, I always wanted to be careful if I did venture off that uh, it was in a territory that I felt was conducive to my comedy. You know, like I'm i am not interested in being a, you know, a, a celebrity or a star. You know, that stuff just doesn't jazz me. Um, I would love to do a TV show, but it would have to be about my comedy. And, um, sometimes, you know, when you go into these network meetings and stuff like that, they're, you know, they, they, they're not really familiar with me (laughs) or my comedy. They just feel like, all right, you've gotten to this point and now we'll take over from here, chuckles. And, um, (laughs) and I've always been resistant to that. You know, it's like, well, I want to be at the table deciding what we're going to do. And, um. So you know, because it's been a little frustrating on the network side trying to get a network to agree with me that they should let me do what I want and leave me alone, um, and also the fact that I I love stand-up comedy and don't want to give up on that either. I mean, I I want to do that forever. I, I've just kind of stayed in the stand-up comedy camp.
1: I I sort of picture these executives, you know, in a <laughs> these network TV executives in a sitcom meeting. Like watching an hour of your stand-up and thinking, "Oh man, we better tell this lovable doofus what's funny."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or they, they, don't, they don't even watch an hour of it. You know, I, I went into a meeting one time and I saw my a tape of mine, like in the you know, the outport little thing that comes out, and I realized, whoever this is just watched five minutes of me five minutes ago. You know what I mean? So anyway, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. It's just a, a different world out there in Hollywood. You know, they, they do they do things the way they want to do them, and it's not necessarily how I want to do them. So that's one thing I love about stand-up is that I'm I'm autonomous. You know, I get to make the decisions. If I think I want to try something on stage, I don't have to run it by anybody. You know, I don't have to sit down with a group of people in suits and ties and say, what do you think? Um, I love being able to just make the choices. You know, I'm just kind of biding my time, waiting for somebody to say, hey, man, what do you want to do? So we'll see. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. That's fine.
1: You know, you have control over the product. You don't have control over the reactions. And, like, stand-up is one of the things where there's the most – Uh. You know, there's the most relationship between being successful and this, like, direct feedback, which is, did people laugh? Right. Um, And I imagine that it's it's hard when you do something, especially if it's something that you like or you are proud of, and it doesn't generate that reaction that means success, and it's just you standing there.
0: Yes, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, I think comedy, you can... You know, you can look at it from a number of different angles. You know, you can look at it, you know, as if it's an art form, but you can also look at it as a science, you know, and um, I'm very intrigued with laughter and what makes people laugh. Sometimes I think, you know, this notion of what's funny and what isn't funny, I've settled on this philosophy. I think if one person in the world thinks something is funny, then it's funny. You know, Now, it might not be funny to everybody. In fact, it might only be funny to that person. So, like, if I, as a stand-up comedian, think of something and I think it's funny, I think it's funny. Now, it is funny. Now, it might not be funny enough to end up in my act. I mean, I I, I do have a job and I need audiences to agree with me for me to have a career, you know. So, you know, what happens is you think of – I'll think of ten things that are funny – I try all of them on stage. The audience agrees with three of them or four of them or one of them or zero of them. The ones that they agree on become my act, you know, and you end up letting the stuff that you think is funny that they're not also agreeing with fall by the wayside. But, um, you know, you hear people flippantly make decisions on what's funny and what isn't. And what's weird to me is it's always whatever that, that person's sense of humor is. Everybody thinks that their sense of humor is the correct one. They think that they're wired into Grand Central on what's funny. So if somebody watches a TV show, they go into work the next day and go, "That show last night is not funny. That show that was on at eight o'clock on NBC is not funny. You know what is funny? The show that was on at eight thirty on CBS. That show is funny. You know they, they don't realize. Well, that's that's your opinion, okay? Um, so. But I guess if any – I I, I fall back on if anybody anywhere laughs at anything, then it is funny. Brian Regan's uh,
1: live stand-up special airs on Comedy Central on September 26th. Let's hear a little bit more of his comedy. Um, Here's a little bit from his special from 2010, All By Myself. Um, Speaking of customer service interactions, um, (laughs) uh, here he is talking about restaurants.
0: And I overheard the woman at the table next to us ask the waiter this question, and it's how she asked the question that was interesting to me. Excuse me, sir, is there any way I could get a glass of water? (laughs) Is there any way? How many possible answers can there be to that question? Oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. There is no way. I toss and turn many a night trying to think up some way, somehow I could get glasses of water for customers but I keep coming up empty Legend has it there was a waiter here years ago who had figured out a way to do just that but he's long gone, and with him the secret. It had something to do with a glass rack and a faucet, but no one's been able to put all the pieces together. So I must say, no, there is no way. How I wish there was a way! Um,
1: so I don't, you know, I, I I know a lot of comics. I don't think it's uncommon for. Um, Uh, for stand-up especially, to be based on going through life and seeing things that don't feel like they make sense and asking why doesn't this thing make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that you are unusual in your commitment to making yourself the target of jokes. Like Mm -hmm. that you have... It seems like you have worked hard to focus on building a character who is... Um, And when I say a character, I don't mean that he's not an authentic thing about you, but um, a guy who is, uh, like, just kind of just trying to figure things out and having a hard time rather than a guy who's telling people the truth, which is a lot of uh, stand-up comics approach to the same problem. And I wonder if that was, like, a choice you made along the way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was a you know a conscious choice but it just felt natural for me to you know I I always feel like an audience is much more willing to go on your ride if you include yourself in who you poke fun at you know if you stand there and you're holier than thou to me that's not as interesting um, that's not as interesting of an experience you know for me as the performer or as an audience member, you know I, I don't want to hear somebody behind a microphone. If I'm in the audience, coming off from a perfect perspective and showing how imperfect the world around is, I, I, I want to share in in that imperfection. You know, like I want the audience to realize, hey, I'm a goof too. You know, um, I, I make my mistakes too, Um, and so I think if I'm willing to poke a stick at me. An audience is much more willing to let me then poke a stick at the world, you know. Um, And and I I find it's a more – it's a fuller experience, if you will, you know, because then you're including everything. You're including everything, including your own vulnerabilities. So, yeah, I I like to – you know, I I, I do a lot of stuff about feeling stuck feeling stupid, but they're always exaggerated fantasies. You know, it's like I, I try to have the the base of what I'm talking about be like a real thing that we all do, but then I, I heighten in my head and in my jokes how stupid I felt about that moment, you know? And something as simple as, you know, you too at the wrong time, you know? Have a nice flight. You too. You know, I mean, that's a joke that I've done for years, but it sort of, you know, encapsulates You know what I'm talking about.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I want to play another clip from uh, Brian Regan's 2004 special, I Walked on the Moon, Um, one of my favorite bits from this special. So Brian is talking about Pop-Tarts, universally relatable food stuff, and um, how there are directions. There are two sets of directions on the back for cooking them, and he's talking about the second of those two.
0: Then they have a whole set of microwave directions. That just blew me away that you could actually microwave a Pop-Tart. I mean, How long does it take to toast a Pop-Tart? A minute, if you want them dark? People don't have that kind of time? Listen, if you need to zap-fry your Pop-Tarts before you head out the door, you might want to loosen up your schedule. And I swear it says microwave on high for three seconds. I don't think I want to wake up and be eaten in three seconds. The alarm goes off. Put him in. Ding. Um. I. I'll
1: tell you what. I'll tell you what I really love about that uh, bit, Brian. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> it's it's an it's a perfectly lovely premise, you know well why are there why are there microwave directions on pop tarts? I love the phrase Zap fry <laughs> and I love the idea of loosening up your schedule to accommodate pop tarts <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, and I felt like when I heard that, I was like either either Brian Regan wrote down on a notepad at some point in his life zap fry pop tarts or brian Regan wrote down why are there you know microwave instructions on the back of a pop tart and just spent a year (laughs) trying out phrases (laughs) trying out little sets of words to describe microwaving a a pop tart and i couldn't decide which of those i liked to think about more but i wonder which is (laughs) the real one
0: well it's funny um on that one, the, the the premise came first. You know, uh, I just – I like Pop-Tarts and I was looking at the back and I saw that you could mic- microwave them for three seconds and I just found that ridiculously absurd. Um, so it started with that. But I think once you have a premise, I love just working on it and tweaking it and finding words and phrases that make it just a little bit funnier. You know, Um I, I, I go by this make something 1% funnier philosophy. Um, so the premise itself w- works, you know, the three seconds to microwave a Pop-Tart. You can joke about that. But then when you do it from night to night to night, you go, okay, they're already laughing. How do I get them to laugh harder? <laughs> How do I get them to enjoy this even more? So you, I try to find peculiar wording and phrases. I mean, George Carlin was... You know, the leader at that, you know, I mean, he would he loved words and phrasing and 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 it's fun to to massage a a joke over a over a long period of time and make it a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And you find a word and you go, oh, man, that that's a funnier word than how I was saying it yesterday. Um, And some people don't notice the nuances. You know, some people will see a joke that you're doing today as opposed to a year ago and go, Oh, that's that same joke you were doing a year ago. And, and in my mind, I'm like, this joke has been through a journey that you're not appreciating. you know. But I guess that's part of it is that, um, the people out there aren't going to realize the effort that goes into something, you know, they just kind of laugh at the end result and don't realize the work that goes into it, but that's okay. As long as they laugh.
1: Well, part of the art, part of the art of it is sort of concealing that effort, right? I mean, it, for, yes. for it to feel like something, for it to feel like a conversation, even though the conversation has only one side.
0: Yes. It, it, it's very weird that, yes, that is the goal. You want it to sound like you're just kind of hopping on stage and you're there in the moment and you're thinking of these things and you're sharing them with the audience. Um, but what's weird is when you get to where you're good enough at that where people believe that and people come up after a show I mean, most people aren't this naive, but some people truly don't know what a stand-up comedian is doing. I mean, some people will literally come up after a show and say, uh, do you just come up with that while while you're up there? And I'm, you know, I'm like, wow. I mean, (laughs) how could they they think that someone is just thinking of this stuff off the top of their head, you know? Um, So it's a compliment. At the same time, it's not, (laughs) you know? I mean, it's a compliment that they feel that way, but it's like. They're certainly not appreciating the effort that went into me crafting all these words if they think I'm just winging it, you know? So, uh, yeah, you know, that that's part of the the fun of it is, um, you know, all, all audiences sometimes care about is just laughing. They just laugh and, hey, wow, that was funny. And they walk out and they might not necessarily know what went into that, but that's okay. That's part of the beauty of it. You dropped out of college
1: to be a stand-up, right?
0: Yes, I um, – well, I knew I wanted to be a comedian, and I was uh, 10 credit hours short of graduating. Uh, it was weird. There, there was a a class I needed to get a grade in, was only offered in one semester and not in the other semester. So it would have been like this long, ridiculous journey to ultimately get my degree. And I knew I didn't need a degree to go audition at the Chuckle House Comedy Club, you know, so... um and I was I was just passionate about wanting to be a comedian and I didn't want to wait the length of time it would have taken me to wait to get my degree to pursue it so I dropped out and I um and 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 what motivated me even further was when people would say well why don't you just wait and get your degree so you have something to fall back on if this comedy thing doesn't work and I, I <laughs> I didn't want to think that the comedy thing might not work. I didn't want to feel like I had something to fall back on. I wanted it to work. It had to work. It it was going to work. And so it was very difficult for me to pursue um, a goal that I didn't want to happen. You know, so for me to get the degree was for a life that I didn't want for myself. (laughs) That was the safe route. So I was like, how am I supposed to wake up and go to class so I can get a degree for this fallback plan? I don't want this plan. I want this plan that's murky and weird and scary. That's the plan I want to go for. So I went that route. When did
1: you feel like it
0: had worked? Oh, boy. You know, there are so many little moments, you know— But I say to this day that the happiest moment for me was the night I passed my audition at the Comic Strip Comedy Club in Fort Lauderdale. Um, I had auditioned five times, and on my fifth audition, it went pretty well. And then this guy who I had never met just walked up and said, hey, I'm Joe Mullen. I run the place. Uh, can I talk to you in the back? I I just, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it because I knew or I felt I knew where this was going. And I said, sure. And he said, uh, by the way, I'm paying for your beer. And I was like, wow, like, like it was such a, a milestone moment for me. You know, like when he said he was buying my beer, I knew that he was about to pass me. And, um. I walked back into the kitchen with him. I mean my heart was pounding. And uh he said, uh, "Hey man, I've been watching you, you know, over the last uh, few weeks. You seem to uh got some good stuff going and uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh you've passed your audition." And um it 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 changed my life. Yeah, I didn't even know what it what that meant literally. You know, I didn't know <laughs> what does that mean? My I've passed my audition. What what happens now? Does someone give me a million dollars? But he was like, uh, no, he goes, what that means is, I mean, I didn't say that to him, but he said, uh, audition night was only one night a week. It was a seven night a week club. He goes, well, what this means is you can come in and perform every single night, but you go on at the end of the show after the professional comedians. I let the locals, this is him talking. I let the locals go on and do a few minutes at the end of the show. And uh, I said, um, that sounds wonderful. And I said, I don't know what. What's cool and what's not cool? I said, would I be abusing the privilege if I went on every single night? (laughs) And he said, "Um, I've never had anybody ask me that. (laughs) He goes, you want to go on every single night? I said, yeah, I want to go on every single night. And he goes, go for it. So I went on every single night. Every single night I went on stage. And I just figured I'm just going to get, I'm going to use every opportunity I can to try to get better at this, you know. And this is going to sound corny and made up, but I don't care. This is the truth. He passed me. It was a wonderful experience. I was still living with my parents down in Miami, Florida. The comic strip was in Fort Lauderdale, so I had an hour drive home. As I was driving home, I saw a shooting star (laughs) in the night, and I had never seen a shooting star in my entire life. I saw a shooting star just go, Like right as I was driving and I was by myself and I was like, (laughs) I couldn't believe the moment. I was like, this is crazy. I just passed my audition. This is what I want to do with my life. I've never seen a shooting star in my life. And I see it tonight, the night I'm told by a guy who runs a comedy club that I'm a comedian. So there you go.
1: Brian Regan. I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you.
0: Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate it, man. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, thank you so much.
1: Brian Regan's new stand-up special is called Brian Regan Live. It's the first live-to-air stand-up special on Comedy Central. It airs September 26th. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. When it comes to music, fusion has a bad name. And for good reason. There's something to be said for just doing the thing instead of doing one thing with some of another thing and a bit of a third thing, especially if you're a newcomer to a couple of the things. But there are exceptions. Take Hugh Masekela. He started playing trumpet at 14 in a black township in South Africa. A few years later, he'd started South Africa's first black youth orchestra. A few years after that, he had to leave home. It was too brutal. The early 60s were a horrible time for black South Africa, but an amazing time for black South African musicians, at least the ones who could escape apartheid. Harry Belafonte helped Miriam Makeba into the world spotlight. Abdullah Ibrahim, then known as Dollar Brand, was a jazz piano superstar. And Masekela's hybrid of jazz, South African music, and American pop was making him famous, too. You probably know this song. It was Masakela's biggest hit and one of the greatest soul jazz records ever. It's called Grazing in the Grass. By the mid-70s, there was a new idea going around. World music didn't have to mean exotica. It could be more than American fads for Hawaiian bands or bossa nova sold to curious middle-class dads in suits. It could mean a genuine pop music of the world. Belafonte had been kind of the demo version. Bob Marley and the Wailers were the market proof. Hugh Masekela was then nearly 15 years into his career. He played straight jazz, got jazz guys angry by playing pop, played with and without the sounds of his homeland, but he wanted to do something bigger, something for the world. So he signed to Casablanca Records, the biggest disco label in the world, famous for Donna Summer, Parliament, and Lips Incorporated. Yes, Funky Town's Lips Incorporated. Masakela hired a Ghanaian high-life band, rented a studio in Lagos, Nigeria, and cut The Boys Doing It. It's a true fusion, a melting pot is sharp and focused, funky as hell. It was dedicated to Fela Kuti, the Nigerian band leader who'd redefined African pop music by creating Afrobeat. Kuti's vision was always explicitly pan-African. He intended for his audience to be not just Nigerians in Nigeria or Africans in Africa, but all of the African people in the world. His purpose was to bind them together. With a blend of South African music, funk, disco, High life, jazz, and pop, Masakela shot for the same star, and he hit it pretty squarely. Masakela's trumpet remains front and center everywhere, and he sounds loose and free and fantastic. But listen in, and you'll hear lots of that lilting, jangling rhythm guitar. It's 100% high life. And of course, there's a beat. It's hard to get disco sounding this funky, but Masakela did it. I'm not going to tell you that the boys doing it is the Pan-African blood-on-the-tracks or thriller or what's going on, but I will say that bringing all these sounds together, it's hard not to sound like a dilettantish doofus. For it to sound this good 40 years later, it's a pretty darn impressive achievement. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, production fellow at Maximum Fun, is Nex Pirello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. And thanks this week to NPR New York for their engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear more about cool culture stuff in between now and then, check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a sort of loosey-goosey roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by the brilliant and hilarious comedian Guy Branum. Uh, This week on the show, what Sesame Street's move to HBO means for public broadcasting, and uh, panelist Oliver Wang's 10-year-old daughter drops by to give a kid's take on kids' TV. You can find Pop Rocket at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Pop Rocket. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts... Have a signature sign off.
2: MaximumFun.org.
1: Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
2: Listener supported.